Daniel. Daniel 2, starting in verse 4b through 728, is all written in Aramaic. Hebrew seems to be emphasizing more when it's the Jews are the focus in the story. And the Aramaic seems to be the focusing on the Gentiles, the pagans, being more emphasized on them. So this lets you know that the main focus here is on Nebuchadnezzar. The main focus in chapter 1 was on Daniel and his friends. Now the main focus is on Nebuchadnezzar, and you can see that because the dream dominates the entire thing. And even the medals in the statue represent all the pagan empires. It's not really about the Jews. The statue is not about the Jews. It's about the empires. What are the four medals? Okay, we're, so we're going to briefly talk about the views on the four medals. We've all read this. We all know there's a statue with four medals, that kind of stuff. There's the gold at the top, there's silver, and then bronze, and then the head is gold, the torso is silver, the thighs are bronze, the legs are iron, and the feet are iron and clay. Who do they represent? That's the question. There are two views to what these medals are. The vast majority of scholars for a long time have thought that these medals are the gold is Babylon, the silver is the Medo-Persian Empire, and the bronze is the Greek Empire, and the iron is the Roman Empire. That's, that's the view that's predominantly taught in churches and all kinds of stuff. There's another view that's less accepted, but it's the view that I'm going to argue for for different reasons that we're going to talk about tonight, and that's that the gold is Babylon, the silver is the Median Empire, the bronze is the Persian Empire, and the iron is the Greek Empire, and the iron mixed with clay is the four generals, the Greek Empire split into the four empires, specifically Ptolemy and the Seleucids. Those are two views. That makes sense? Big disagreement is whether to see, in the Roman view, the Medes and the Persians together as one empire and add the Romans at the end, or to see the Medes and the Persians as two separate empires and stop with the Greeks. That's basically the, the biggest question. Now, in some sense, this doesn't really matter a lot for us, in a life application sense, but in some sense it kind of does because God is prophesying, predicting a lot of things. And the more accurate we can be to what he was talking about, the more validity it gives God in this sense of like he really knows what he's talking about. And we know that, but there's, but we're still humans and we have doubts and there's nothing like just having more things to strengthen the idea that God really knows everything and he can handle everything. What do all scholars agree on? All scholars agree, first, that the medals match up with different kings. And that these kings that they match up are the same beat, that match up with the same beasts in Daniel 7. All scholars agree that Daniel 2 with the medals and Daniel 7 with the beasts coming out of the sea match up. So whatever view you take in Daniel 2, you have to take in Daniel 7 and vice versa. So they all agree that they're equal. The second thing that all scholars agree on is that the first metal gold in the first beast, which is the winged lion, is Nebuchadnezzar II. We know this because Daniel 2.38, and Daniel literally says, the gold head is you, Nebuchadnezzar II. What's interesting is that he says the head is him, but all the other metals are kingdoms. So he specifically distinguishes the first gold head 
as Nebuchadnezzar II, not Babylon. And then goes on and says that the other kingdoms are the other metals and the other beasts are kingdoms. So we'll talk about that significance a little bit later. All scholars also agree that all the metals and beasts are consecutive kingdoms, that no kingdoms are getting skipped. It's not, it's not like you just go Babylon, Persia, and skip over the Greeks, and then go the Romans. So all scholars agree that these are consecutive kingdoms as we go through. Now, where do scholars disagree? They disagree on what I mentioned already on who that second metal slash beast is. The Roman view says the Medo-Persian empires combined together, and it, you, it ends with the Romans. And the Greek view believes that it's the Medo-Persian empire separate, and it ends with the Greeks. Thus, the Roman view and the Greek view. The name of the view is based on what empire is the last empire. That's what they mostly disagree on. The Roman Empire view has been the most dominant view for a long time in the Western world. Pretty much starting with a man by the name of Josephus, who lived between 37 and 100 AD. He's the first one that really starts adopting this idea and promoting it, and has pretty much taken hold since then. First, why do they believe that the Fourth Empire is the Roman Empire? First, they argue that the Median Empire was not its own separate empire. Because there's so little information about the Median Empire, they make the assumption that the Median Empire did not stand on its own, therefore it can't be seen as a separate metal or a beast, therefore it has to be included with the Persians, and that makes sense because the Persians were often called the Medo-Persian Empire. However, there is so much that we do not know about history, especially this time period. And there's, we are so ignorant on so many things. And that's making a huge assumption based on a lack of evidence. That is not that the evidence isn't there because it's all clearly laid out in front of us. It's that we don't have the evidence because most of the world has not been dug up in archaeology. So there's so much we do. So that's really an assumption based on ignorance, and that's not good. However, you can argue that the Median Empire was a dominant thing, especially when you look at what I already talked about, that when Nebuchadnezzar II died, Babylon kind of lost all of its glory. And what we are beginning to learn about the Median Empire is that the Median Empire began to rise up and did have a huge influence. And then the Persians came along. What is significant is that Daniel does not say that each kingdom or each metal and beast is the beast begins at the beginning of the kingdom and dies at the end of the kingdom. Daniel never says that that metal represents from the very birth of the kingdom all the way to the very end of the kingdom and the next metal doesn't begin until that previous kingdom is gone. Does that kind of make sense? Daniel, there is implication that there can be overlap. And if that's true, that makes sense that the Median Empire can exist why the Babylonian Empire and be considered a metal. What Daniel seems to be focusing on is the height of their power and influence, not their birth to their death of their kingdom, and then the next one begins, and then the next one begins, but that their height of power. And it is therefore it's possible Babylon does exist after Nebuchadnezzar II, but it's the height of the Median Empire, thus we begin the new metal. Does that kind of make sense? And so he seems to be interested in their world influence, not their existence. And that makes sense, too, because Babylon's been around for hundreds of years before the Assyrians. 
The Medians have been around for hundreds of years. The Persians have been around. I mean, you go back to the time of Abraham, and these kingdoms already exist. So it can't be birth to death and then the next medal. Birth to death, the next medal. It has to be the height of their power. The other thing that I already mentioned is in Daniel 2.38, Daniel specifically mentions after you, Nebuchadnezzar, will be the next kingdom. He doesn't say after the Babylonian Empire. He says after you, Nebuchadnezzar, will be the next kingdom. That points really powerfully to the Median Empire because the Persians aren't going to come along until 100 years later. And the Median Empire is already existing. So that's the first first argument against the Roman view. Okay, The Roman view, that's really basically all they say. They just say, well, there's no real evidence that the Medians were a great empire, so it can't be them. It's also important to note that the Roman Empire view was not the earliest view that the church had or that the world had. We think of like, oh, the Roman view has been around for a long time, since about 100 years after Jesus, and everybody's really much taken that view for a long time, the most people. That must mean it's the oldest. That's not true. There's great evidence that the Median Empire being thought of as his own empire has been around for way before the Roman Empire ever came along. And this is seen specifically in a couple historians. First, as a man by the name of the Fourth Sibyl. Okay, now that wasn't his birth certificate name, like I'm the Fourth Sibyl. It's that there were many Sibyls who were scholars, and we scholars, you have to understand, nobody was called Nebuchadnezzar III or Cyrus II. Those are the numbers we've given them because we're trying to keep them all straight in our heads. Fourth Sibyl comes along. He wrote a book around 80 A.D., so before Josephus came along in 135 A.D. and wrote his view. However, we think that that book could be actually dated back to 140 B.C., so even before the time of Christ. And he wrote in this, he wrote that there are four empires, the Assyrians, the Medians, the Persians, and the Greeks. He listed the four empires, and Rome was not in it because Rome didn't exist yet, but when he looked at the empires, he said it was the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. So he saw four empires, for him, he goes on later in his writings and talks about how the Assyrians and the Babylonians were the same, which is interesting. Today, we like to combine the Medes and the Persians together, but the ancients actually combined the Assyrians and the Babylonians together because the Assyrians and the Babylonians were pretty much the same thing. They were like almost like brothers. They literally came from like the same origin, the same land, and they just kind of grew apart politically speaking and dominating each other, but they had the same culture, the same gods, the same language, all that kind of stuff. Yet the Medians were a completely different culture. The Persians were a completely different culture. The Greeks were a completely different culture, and so were the Romans. So it actually makes more sense to see the Assyrians and the Babylonians as a similar culture rather than the Medes and the Persians. And so he saw them as these four empires, not talking about Rome, but what's most importantly is he clearly saw the Medians and the Persians as two distinct separate empires from each other. Then when you get to other scholars, so I'm going to quote him directly, Sybil, there might shall be, talking about the Persian Empire, there might shall be supreme in all the world. That's almost the exact same phrase that Daniel uses of the third metal and the third beast. And then he said the Macedonians, the Persians shall experience the yoke of slavery and terror. 
And that's pretty much the same language that Daniel's using of the fourth one dominating the third one. And so it's very interesting that the language of Sybil is almost exactly the same as Daniel's language when they're talking about the Medians and the Persians and the Greeks being separate empire, which would not make sense if you see the Medes and the Persians together as one. And then we also see other scholars who often, and here's the other thing too, referring, associating metals with different empires in the ancient world was a very common thing. It was a very common thing. Many historians before and after Daniel assigned certain metals to different kingdoms to portray their succession, specifically these empires. So I think that's a huge argument that Daniel is literally, literally, literally using cultural language of the time. For us, it seems weird, like metals and this and all that kind of stuff and beasts. But if you go to Daniel's culture and read other documents outside of the, the Bible, the language begins to match up a lot, which means Daniel, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar has been given a dream that is actually rooted in the culture of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is interpreting it rooted in the culture. And for the people of that culture, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. That's how we review these things. For us, it just feels weird and strange. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. And so I think that find, discovering this, the fourth Sybil and his writing and some other things point to this is, this is real. I mean, Daniel's one of the most famous books that people really like to say this is just made up. This is too fantastical to really have happened. He just made us all up. But the more writings we discover, the more we realize this is literally how these people thought during this time period. And it gives it way more historical validity, especially in witnessing to people and in your own faith and securing it, than if you just think that this is just fantasy. Because Daniel does kind of read like fantasy in some way because it's dreams and visions. Now, the second reason why I believe the Roman view is wrong those who take the Roman Empire view argue that the Jewish literature of the Roman Empire and the early Christian literature interpreted the fourth metal and beast as the Roman Empire. That's true. So if we're going to Josephus, who lived between 37 and 100 AD, Josephus fought against the Romans. He was a Jew who fought against the Romans. Then he got captured by the Romans, and they were pretty much going to kill him, and he became a turncoat. And he said, hey, Romans, I will write you a detailed history about the Jews so you can help, so you can understand them. Just keep me alive. He argues that he'd been, he didn't betray his people. He was writing a detailed history for the Romans to help them better understand the Jews so they wouldn't hate the Jews as much and try to slaughter them as much. Other people think, eh, that might have been a good excuse to just keep your head on your shoulders. Who knows? But either way, he wrote a detailed history of the Jews. Really, and, and, and it's a great book to read. If you want to understand how a Jewish person during the time of Christ viewed the Bible and Jewish history, he's the place to go. He's a first century person that help you understand this stuff. So he wrote this detailed history, and he was living in the Roman Empire. Daniel was written before the Roman Empire. And he tended to interpret everything through the lens of the Romans because he really wanted the Romans to look good because he was writing history for them. What better way to say, see, God knew about you before you were already here. And he interpreted the beasts and the fourth metal as the Roman Empire. He was the first one to do this because he was highly influential. 
and Judaism and Christianity, his view began to influence many, many, many people. So therefore, a lot of Christians began to interpret the fourth beast and the fourth metal as a Roman Empire because they were living under the yoke of the Roman Empire, and that made sense. We tend to interpret biblical passages in light of what we are currently dealing with. Okay, history is long. We go back and we read the Bible and interpret it in the views of how to deal with the blacks during slavery and that kind of stuff and, and prosperity gospel stuff. We, we tend to read our culture into the Bible and say, oh, that's what it was talking about. And so that makes sense. And so that view took over, especially since the Roman Empire has become the most interesting empire to a lot of historians. The problem with this is that these are all held during the Roman Empire. Not one person believed that the fourth metal and the fourth beast was the Roman Empire until the Roman Empire came along. However, many people believed that it was the Greek Empire way before the Roman Empire came along. So the Roman view seems to have replaced the Greek. Now there are many scholars who are beginning to go back to the Greek view. And there's a, there's a couple reasons that we'll talk about later. The third reason why I believe the Minian Empire is the most dominant one, that the Roman Empire view takes the view that it's the Roman Empire, is that Paul uses the language of Daniel 7 to describe the Antichrist, and that's the little horn that rises up out of the beast's head. He uses that language to describe a future Antichrist, so they're like, wait a minute. If Paul is talking about that little horn as a future Antichrist, then the little horn can't refer to a, a general before the Roman Empire comes along. Does that make sense? If Paul says that little horn in Daniel is referring to an Antichrist that comes after him, then the little horn can't refer to an Antichrist that has already come before Paul. Therefore, it can't be the Greek Empire because the Greek Empire was before Paul. Therefore, the Antichrist is not coming out of the Greek Empire. It's coming out of the Roman Empire. Do you track that thinking? So I'll say it one more time just to make sure it's in there. Paul's saying, hey, he's using Daniel 7 language, the little horn coming out of the beast's head, which all scholars believe that that's the Antichrist. And he says, he begins to talk about it as a future Antichrist yet to come after his life. So they would say, wow, if Paul says that that's the Antichrist coming after him, it can't refer to an Antichrist that came before Paul. Therefore, the Greek view is wrong because the Greek view, the Greeks came before Paul and they would say that the little horn is coming up out of the Greek empire and the Antichrist is a Greek and they would say specifically Antiochus IV because of what he did to the Jews and therefore it can't be that because that was all before Paul and Paul's looking for it. Then John in Revelation 13 uses the imagery of the four beasts to refer to empires during his time period or future. So they're like, well, okay, if he's using the language of the beast to refer to an empire that he's currently in, the Romans, then it can't refer to the Greeks only because the Romans hadn't come yet and John's referring to this time period. Does that make sense? There's a problem with that. Paul never says that the little horn is a Roman antichrist that will come in the future. He never, he never says that little horn is a future antichrist. He never interprets it. The other problem with the John view on Revelation 13 is John doesn't see four separate beasts. He sees a conglomeration of all the beasts together in one body. If you really take that view, John's saying it's one kingdom. 
and Paul never makes the connection, so it doesn't work. Most likely, they're using what we learned about in Isaiah typology. And they're taking something that happened in the past and has already been fulfilled, and they're symbolically saying that something like that's going to happen again. Does that make sense? And this is seen clearly that when John is looking at a future beast, that is all the beasts. It's, the, it's a lion, a leopard, and a bear, and a terrible beast all mixed together. That powerfully points to the fact that John is not trying to tell you that these kingdoms are yet to come. He's trying to tell you that all kingdoms that come are going to be like these kingdoms that are already happened. And that every kingdom after that is going to be a combination of all these kingdoms. And that's true. America itself has incredibly, we're incredibly Greek. The way that we think and view the world is big time Greek. And when we go through that history in more detail, I'll show you how that works. We have a Roman government. Our government is directly plagiarized from the Romans, for lack of a better phrase. Okay, we're strongly influenced by the Persians. And so a lot of people have been throughout all of history, the Mongols, the Ottoman Empire, the British, we've all been greatly influenced by these empires. These empires don't dominate the entire world and influence for a long time, and nobody be like them afterwards. So it could be that John is speaking to that. And John says that there have been many antichrists, and there are yet to be many more antichrists to come in 1 John chapter 4. So you, obviously the Old Testament, the New Testament writers aren't thinking about one specific antichrist all the time. So that, that falls short. Does that kind of make sense? The other thing is the little rock that comes and destroys the statue that Daniel says is clearly the kingdom of God destroys the statue at the very heel of the statue, meaning the end of the fourth empire. The son of man figure that shows up in Daniel 7 is said to come after the end of the fourth empire. If you believe that the Roman Empire is the fourth empire, that kind of makes sense. So they would say, see, Jesus came in the fourth empire, and Jesus came in the Roman Empire. The problem with that is there's two things. One, Jesus came in the very beginning, if maybe the middle of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was just becoming the height of his power, and it would be around all the way into the 400s AD. The Roman Empire didn't really seize power over the world until the 148. It didn't really secure their power until 55 AD, or sorry, 55 BC. They're going to be around until the 400s, until the Germanians come in and the barbarian invasion and stuff. So Jesus didn't come at the very end of the Roman Empire. He came at the beginning of the Roman Empire. So that completely contradicts what Daniel is saying in chapter 2 and chapter 7. The other problem is the Roman Empire is clearly gone now. It's clearly gone. So some people said, okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus came in the middle. So it's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ. So when the Roman Empire collapses, Jesus is going to come back again. So what happened? The Romans collapsed, the empire collapsed in the 400s, but he didn't come back. So then they were like, well, yeah, but the Roman Empire still had strong influence over there in the east with the Greek Orthodox Church and Byzantine and all that kind of stuff. And there was still a pope around for several hundred years after that, so that had collapsed. But then finally, when the World War I and World War II came along, all political remnants of the Roman Empire finally was just completely gone. 
And they're like, yeah, but the Catholic Church is still really powerful. And the Catholic Church came out of the Roman Empire and is the Holy Roman Empire, after all, which is interesting because it was neither holy nor Roman or an empire. But that's what they would argue. And so, but now the Catholic Church is like seriously collapsing and is kind of dwindling. And even the Pope says it's kind of the end and nothing has happened. And, and even the Pope says, we're not Roman. There's no political thing here. And now all these people have been holding to the Roman view are like, something's not right. Everything that we keep, we keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And they know that everything hinges on this rock, this son of man coming at the end of the fourth empire. And now that's not happened. So that's why a lot of scholars are going back and re-looking at the Greek view. And now with new archaeological discoveries, we're learning more about the Medians and we're getting a better idea that they actually were more influential. And then that makes you realize, wow, this really was talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, some people said, yeah, but Jesus doesn't come along until at least 100 years after the Greeks collapse. And Daniel says right after that, so you had the same problem. Yeah, but when we're talking about empires that have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, a hundred-year gap between the collapse of the Fourth Empire and Jesus coming along is really a drop in the bucket. (laughs) Daniel didn't say, the minute that Fourth Empire collapses, the next hour at 11 o'clock, that rock is coming. He just said after. And a hundred years, when we're talking about everything started in the 700s and goes all the way to the 100s, 100 years is not that big of a gap between the fourth and the kingdom. And the other thing that really points to the Greek view is Antiochus IV, and we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to Daniel 7, is the best candidate for the Antichrist. He really just crosses all the T's and dots all the I's on everything. And it's really hard to think that this might have been Titus, who's the Roman guy that they said would be the Antichrist. He just doesn't fit it in that kind of a way. Why does all this matter? Okay, big whoop. What did empires, does these metals really truly match up with? Who cares? I think as we keep going through Daniel, we'll see why. And like I said, I think the biggest argument for why this matters is because the more detailed You're going to see Daniel's visions are detailed. When we get to chapter 11 and 12, oh my gosh, it is so specific. And the more you can say this is exactly what he was talking about, the more it just validates God really truly knows the future. Our faith becomes more secure and his ability to know the future and the testimony to other people who doubt this becomes stronger. The other reason is God clearly wants you to know this. He clearly gave very specific details because he wanted them to know this. And he is trying to say, I am a sovereign God. This isn't just like, well, it's all been done and over with. Who really cares? Jesus is already here. No, if it didn't matter, then why did God spend literally chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, giving very specific details that match up with these empires if it just didn't matter? They're all a bunch of dead empires. The other thing is, the problem with pushing things so far out in the future is when you say, oh, this is the second coming of Jesus Christ, or this is the Roman Empire that's yet to come, that is so far removed from Daniel. That's so far removed from the Jews that are coming after him just in the next 100 or 200 years. That's so far removed from us, too. It's like, I don't really think God is an author who writes about things that we're all going to be dead by the time they come along. 
Everywhere in the Bible that you keep seeing God reveal things, it's usually happening within their life or the next generation or two. Something that's happening very immediately. Because the whole point of the Bible is to give you hope for your present suffering. And when he speaks of these things are yet to come, and talking about a rock and a son of man that's going to destroy the things to come, that needs to be pretty immediate in their lives. Because when it's like 3,000 years have gone by still and none of that's been fulfilled, it's like, what does that have to do with my life? And I feel like pushing it so far into the future, 3,000 years away from Daniel, is way more like, this has no application to my life whatsoever, than something that's already happened long ago. And we can look back and say, look, God was good and faithful back then, so he will be good and faithful right now. That has way more application. And I really don't think, and when we get to Revelation, I'm going to take the same view on that. I don't think this is just all super future stuff. I think God is trying to speak to us now. And the best way to encourage us in present suffering under the oppression of empires is to either prophesy something that's going to immediately happen in our time or something that already has happened so that I can look back and say, if he was faithful then, he will be faithful now. Or I can see him being faithful right now and know he'll be faithful in the future. And I think that is way more powerful of a message of hope than, oh, we still got a couple of thousand more years before Jesus and God's hope comes along. Does that make sense? Christ said, I've come to make your joy complete now. I'm going away to the cross to come back to prepare a place for you now. It was all about immediacy, not instant gratification, but immediate hope, immediate joy, immediate peace. And I think that that makes this stuff way more relevant. And it helps us understand our culture way better when we understand how this stuff already happened.